Nine, you are cut off. Back. Return to base immediately. Ride music beam back to base. Stay out of that time plaque. All pilots, ride pan pipes back to base. Today on the program, I'm so happy to have Leah Stewart here in the studio. We're taping. It's the 3rd of April, 2018. You can't tell for the weather outside, though, right, Leah? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And you're in town to read at Literati Bookstore. I am, yes. And the new novel is out, What You Don't Know About Charlie Outlaw. Uh It's like fresh off the like end of March launch, sort of, right? Yeah, it's been out a week today. So what's it been like, Leah, so far? For you, because <laughs> you're doing a tour, and right, and you have a cough. First stop. Yeah, okay. well, actually, I, I read at home. I, I live in Cincinnati, so I did read there. And Cincinnati pride, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a nice way to start with the hometown crowd. Um, it's uh, you know, I think a lot of what what happens when a book comes out now takes place online. So some someone tweets a mention of it, or uh, you know, there's these bookstagrammers who. Oh, right. Take pictures of the book with flowers or objects or whatever. And so you see some of that <laughs> and you're watching reviews come in and and then there's the tour. Yeah. And so and you've got some stops in the tour. And this is one of the so the a kind of a home away from home slightly. Um Ann Arbor, Michigan, because you got your MFA here. I did, yeah. Although it's been a long time, a frighteningly long time. I graduated in ninety six. And so is this have you been back since, Leah, for I've other been book back, tours? Or? Um I think I've only been back once. There was a I wanna say it was the twentieth anniversary or the, it was the something anniversary of the MFA program mm. and there was a party for Nick Del Banco. Oh nice. And yeah. I came back for that. But that was a while ago and I don't know that I've been here. Since then, well, I think you'll see many changes. But one of the great changes is Literati Bookstore, where right. you'll be reading. So I think I think you'll like that. I'm space. looking forward to seeing it. And, yeah, and say hi to Hillary and Mike from us. I will. <laughs> well, so back to what you don't know about Charlie Outlaw. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the book? Because um, I know there there probably isn't a spoiler alert. Like we don't right, but I'll let you go with this. <laughs> Well, it's about an actor who gets kidnapped, and if that's what you meant, like you, you, that happens by the end of the first chapter, so we're not giving anything away. And the first sentence is, something terrible is about to happen to Charlie Outlaw, so you know something bad is coming from the go. Uh, he is a TV actor. He is recently famous, 
and for a TV show that is has become very successful. And he gave an interview where he said a lot of wrong things. He upset his fans. He upset his coworkers. And perhaps most importantly, he upset his girlfriend, who is Poor now Josie. Yeah, who is now his ex girlfriend. And so the book goes back and forth between the trouble that he finds himself in and Josie going through her life in Hollywood and trying to figure out what's happened to him. And it's very important that these people are both actors as your your yes. main characters mm-hmm. because you're the this book is also exploring multiple identities and maybe more people can also connect to this because of the personas we have on social media. Right. Uh that's definitely one way that I thought about it. We all have uh, public selves and always have, but our public selves used to be the selves that we had at work or the selves that we had with our in-laws. And now we have these public selves who are out on the internet for any random person to Google us. So it's a little closer to the kind of experience that a celebrity might have than most regular people would have had 20 years ago. And uh, I think that the question of how we curate the version of ourself that shows up online has a lot of overlap with people who are in the public eye and are doing that kind of thing all the time professionally. We're, we're all doing that kind of thing all the time now, just in taking a picture with the idea of putting it on Instagram, right? Changes it. It's not yeah. just documenting the moment for yourself or for memory or for... No, it's creating a public version of yourself. And so... and. People can be confused by that, do you think? This like extra identity. I think so. And I think, again, that's where there's overlap with what it's like to be both an actor and a famous person. Because when you are presenting a version of yourself publicly, I do think that sometimes the line blurs about which is you and when people are reacting to you publicly, I think you internalize some of that in how you understand yourself. Yeah, completely. Even thinking about teaching as a role and you're the the director of the creative writing program at the university. I was, I'm actually now I'm the head of the English department. Yeah. (laughs) So this is my first year doing that. So congratulations. Thanks. (laughs) And so that, that, that gives you sort of a new layer of identity too, Leah. Sure, that's true. Yeah. I have to go to meetings with deans and things now and represent the department. That's new. Did you change your, your photo on the, your your school site? No, I'm just no. teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> yeah, more much books. more stern. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> brow right, right. <laughs> um, well, how long did it take so for the novel? What you know, this is your fifth novel. Sixth. Sixth. Okay. My counting poor. That's fine. Better with words. Hopefully that bears out in the <laughs> in our conversation today. But so, what you don't know about Charlie Outlaw? Uh-huh. How long in the making? And was like, and where does this fit in to your like as a as a writer? Like your kind of making spectrum. I mean, I think that thematically it is it is of a piece with the other books that I've written because I do tend to write over and over about identity. And so actors are a natural fit. They have to be different people for a living, but also again, what we already talked about, they they have to play themselves in public all the time. And there are all these different versions of them in people's minds. So I found that a fascinating way to look at that 
theme. What shapes us? How do we shape ourselves? How much control do we have over that? Again, how much do we internalize of what other people seem to believe about us? How how do our different environments change who we are and who we think we are? So I write about these things over and over. I think because I grew up military. Uh, and so this is a... a Born in an airbase on Texas, right? Yes, that's okay. right. Yeah. So the reason why I think that that led to this preoccupation with identity is because when you move around a lot as a kid, I mean, kids want to fit in. They want to make friends. So you, you do, you adapt, you reshape yourself to each new environment. I moved from England to Kansas, for instance, when I was seven. That's a move. Uh-huh. I had dresses and a British accent and they were not into the British accent. <laughs> so what did you I dropped it uh, fairly quickly and I started wearing jeans and cowboy boots. And then um, later, in at the end of sixth grade, I moved from Fairfax County, Virginia to small town New Mexico. So that was also a big shift. So but they were out the cowboy boots again. Got, exactly. No, larger size, right. perhaps. Yeah. So I've, I've just had a lot of different, uh, I've had a lot of different accents, quite literally. And I think that that has been um, the fodder for that particular thematic preoccupation. So in that way, it's similar, but... Uh, in terms of the narrative approach, it's pretty different because I wrote it in the omniscient voice. Which is clear from the first line right. that you, you quoted for us. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was a new thing for me to try. So, so why that as the new, and, and is that something you try to do that you're exercising or exploring these different possibilities? I think so. Yes. This was the first time in the past I've had an idea for the book and it's led to uh, what I was going to do in terms of point of view and structure and narrative approach. This time I... Because it needed to be like what you wanted to do called for a Yeah. So you find, you, find a, you find a path, you find a scaffolding for what it is that you want to do. With this one though, I had been... So I... We have we offer a PhD in creative writing, and what that means is that I participate. One of the many things that means is that I participate in doctoral exams. And I was sitting in the room several years ago with a student who was doing a history of the novel exam, and I thought, once we hit the 19th century on her list, I've read all these books, but I had not read the early iterations of the novel. I hadn't really read much in the 18th century, let alone 17th, 16th century. And I thought I need to fill in this gap in my knowledge. And uh, I have a friend who is an 18th centuryist at another university in Cincinnati, and she started giving me a reading list. So I was reading all of these 18th century novels. Which and, were some of the ones that you remember? Uh, Tristram Shandy oh, okay. was an early one. <laughs> I think the very first one I read was actually um, Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. And I read a, a, num a couple of books by Francis Burney who was an influence on Jane Austen, a very popular writer of, of the day and an influence on uh, Jane Austen. I read, I read so many that now I'm forgetting some of them. I read Pamela, which I hated, hated Pamela. I've, I've not heard many people say nice things oh, about Pamela. Awful. Anyway, <laughs> what I really enjoyed... And yet she persists. <laughs> right. <laughs> what I really enjoyed about these books, which are very weird compared to the novels that come later. You know, you realize when you're reading these books that our ideas about what postmodern and experimental fiction sort of quote-unquote created, that they didn't create anything. Those things had just fallen out of style for a long time. I mean, Tristram Shandy has 
just a black page in the middle of it for no apparent reason. There's all kinds of trickery and weird maneuvers in terms of how that book is constructed. And one of the things that I thought was 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 really fun about those books was the very strong presence of the narrative voice. So that there was this sense of this mind speaking to you across centuries. I mean, some of the characters, the characters much more than post-Austin feel like caricatures. They're silly. They don't seem psychologically real, many of them. Um, the the women writers were often dealing with highly sentimental themes and all the female characters for cultural reasons had to be, or the protagonists had to be incredibly virtuous. So they're a little bit wooden. But the voices of the narrator where you can, you feel like this personality and, and these minds come through and communicate with you and they crack jokes. They give you context that that you don't otherwise have. Um, Lawrence Stern and Tristram Shandy likes to pause the action by saying, I will drop the curtain on this scene (laughs) for a moment. I just thought that would be really fun to do that. Leah, let's drop the curtain for a moment on this scene. Take a break and we'll be back. Okay. Okay. Today on the program, Leah Stewart is here. Her novel, What You Don't Know About Charlie Outlaw. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Stephanie behind the glass. We'll be back. Loretta broke my heart in a letter She told me she was leaving and her life would be better Joan broke it off over the phone After the tone, she left me alone Jen said she'd never ever see me again When I saw her again, she said it again Jen met another man Lisa got amnesia, just forgot who I am Felicity said there was no electricity Emily, no chemistry. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today, Leah Stewart is here. Her novel on the table with us, What You Don't Know About Charlie Outlaw, out with Putnam. Um, And thanks to Elena Hershey for sending us copies of the book. Um, And many thanks for for you coming to the studio Leah, oh, my pleasure. and you know flying in and <laughs> coming here directly <laughs> um so thanks for picking the songs too um are some of these favorites or they're all favorites know? it's so funny that, that we started with the national and then we had that clip of flight of the guns it couldn't be a more dramatic mood <laughs> shift than those two but uh they're all songs that um i associate with something or other about moments in the book i i use music to get in a certain mood so can let's talk about it so how do you do it i i'm just i'm i have a sense of the scene and i am looking for a song that seems to me that i'm gonna get a little inarticulate about this i think because it's not fully conscious i'm just looking for something that feels right so the national being a very emotive kind of sorrowful band they're good for those really dramatic emotional moments and flight of the concords you know they're silly they're very smart but they're silly and uh there are moments again coming back to that that narrative voice that i was interested in playing with this is a voice that can kind of crack jokes and be sly and be wry even at moments where the characters are having a rough time so that's why that song so that one for example um early on in the novels an example that occurs to me is when charlie's um been kidnapped and he's in the the trunk or the boot of the car yeah and um and the but the voice says 
well, Charlie's going to, we're going to leave him now. Like he's going to be okay. And we'll get back to him. Yeah. Is, is that? Yeah. That's me those... doing Lauren Stern. That's like, <laughs> let's drop the curtain for a moment while I tell you some other stuff. Because, you know, it, the the narrator, the omniscient narrator, I think is coming back. Maybe not as, not as obvious an omniscient narrator is what I've used here, but uh, Celeste Ng's first book definitely has an omniscient of the show. narrator. Um, Meg Wolitzer's new book has an omniscient narrator. Again, not as maybe chatty an omniscient narrator, mm-hmm. but it's th- there. They're switching point of view. Um, they're telling you things outside of what the character is experiencing in that in that exact moment. I think Celestine's book begins, Lydia's dead, but they don't know it yet. That's mm-hmm. obviously omniscient. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Um, the omniscient narrator had retreated from contemporary fiction for a long time, uh, at least contemporary literary fiction. And I think that we were we were tra- we're trained or we have been trained in MFA programs to disappear into the character, to make transitions seamless. It's really difficult to do that. And it was just it was just so much fun not to have to try. <laughs> So a word advocating for fun yeah, in the writing. Yeah, it was fun. Uh-huh. It was fun. I've, this is the most fun I've ever had writing a book. And I think it was partly because I enjoyed doing the research, but also <laughs> because uh, I had such a good time with that voice. So, so, and let's let later, let's talk about the research okay. as well. Um, but the voice too, was it when you, so it feels like the origin story maybe came because when you're looking for material and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm getting the wrong end of the stick here, but, um, you're reading, you happen to be reading about what's the guy's name? The Sherlock Holmes, Benedict. Oh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he got carjacked when he He was like on a, like for, on a a foreign country on location. Uh Uh-huh. And so, yeah, can you tell us a little, because I feel like I've read that this was part of the origin. Like the It was, it just that, really stuck with me. He wasn't famous when that happened to him, but he was very famous by the time I read that. And it just seemed so weird that something like that had happened to this very famous person. I think we don't think of celebrities as being quite real, but as quite real people. But we also don't, we certainly don't imagine them, uh, you know, getting the stomach flu or getting mugged or that's not what we picture. I think we picture like glamorous parties and wild romances and things like that. Um, so so stuck with you, it just really stuck with me. And, uh, and it's like, uh, I mean, this is it's kind of, it seems like a silly metaphor, but it's apt. It's like a, the, the sand in the, in the oyster, the, you know, the pearl. <laughs> yeah. And so this, things this just, it's, you get a little idea and it sticks with you and things start to accumulate around it. And that's what ultimately, you know, when, when you keep thinking about it and you keep adding other pieces to it, that's what lets you know, you can actually get a novel out of it. And so what does your process look like? Because I feel like now you're talking about like there are these fragments and you were gesturing too and they're gathering. So Sure. So like one piece was the actor who was going to get kidnapped and this other piece was this desire to play with that 18th century narrative voice. And they seemed to me, it seemed to me that that was a good way to write about Hollywood and actors because that voice lets you, um, again, be a little bit satirical, a little bit mocking, but it also lets you go fully into their minds and completely sympathize so have with empathy them. In the writing, yes, of it. So, yeah. So it's and not I'm, a I'm never, I'm not, I'm not interested in satire. I'm, I'm interested in, in, um, in empathy with my characters. I'm interested in, in trying to get the reader to feel what they feel. 
But think about Jane Austen. So in something like in a in a book like Pride and Prejudice, sometimes she's asking you to feel what those characters feel and be in total sympathy. And other times she's a little bit pulled back and making fun of them a little bit. And so there's enormous flexibility in that voice. And because Hollywood and actors are such easy targets for satire, I thought that I didn't, I didn't want to write satire, first of all, but I also thought that being able to move out of their heads and have a voice that was sympathetic without their, their own, pre- I wanted to take their preoccupations seriously without alienating the reader. And I thought having an intervening voice might help. Does that make sense? It does. And is that also why the voice was often had comic sort of observations or worked in a way to lighten or yeah i mean i i was never like i will deliberately be funny here but uh there are just a number of absurdities to the situations that they end up in so and so if this observational voice the omniscient voice then is even talking about them rather plainly it can become something where you can see the absurdity with that slight distance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or so. Yeah. Okay. So with this book, you asked about process with this book, because I was tackling subjects that I knew so little about. I did a, I started doing research before I wrote very much. So, what, so I did a great deal of research and then started writing. So you interviewed actors, you went on mm-hmm. sets. What were some mm-hmm. of the favorite moments of this or, or maybe even moments that you feel like were critical to the process? And then maybe some fun ones. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was critical just to to stand around on a set and watch. It's just their work day, not just the actors, but the assistant director and the guy who does the sound and the people in costuming and the woman who drives the shuttle between the parking lot and the and the studio lot. And uh, what's her name? I don't remember her name. (laughs) Fran. Fran. (laughs) Uh, So there's just an enormous number of people involved in making two minutes of television. And it's fascinating to stand there and watch that unfold, watch all the people involved, watch the the um, the coordination with which they do it. You know, everybody knows sort of where their spot is and what their job is and what they're supposed to do. And if something gets messed up, it throws this whole elaborate machinery out of whack. It's just it was just really fascinating to stand there and watch all that. And then when they're not filming, the way the uh, everyone kind of relaxes and then there's just a lot of standing around making chit chat by the, the craft services table. So it's an interesting back and forth their their work day between this this intensity and kind of nothingness like sitting in their trailers I, I playing word games on their phone which is what I have my characters doing at one point and you're a natural observer like that's something that's been present in part of your skill of writing from the very beginning it's informed your other novels yeah i i just i pay a lot of attention to human behavior much more than I do to place. I often find when I want to write a building or a landscape, I have to stare at a picture because I don't have as much of a mental memory for that. A mental memory? Where else would a memory be? (laughs) 
Oh, it could be a you physical memory. You can have muscle memory. memory You're muscle right. Memory. Yeah, 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 you can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not great with visuals. So again, I look, have to look at pictures or literally go stand in a place and describe it. And I have to make myself do that. But human behavior, I just pay naturally pay a lot of attention to. And so what does it look like when you're sort of working? Because you're there observing and you're absorbing mm-hmm. it. And it sounds like you're also you're recording it in your your mental memory. No, just yeah. <laughs> or the memory palace or so. But also, are you there with like a notebook? Like, like what are some of like your techniques for this? Or is it more absorption? And when I was interviewing people, I had a notebook. So I took a lot of notes when I actually talked to people. But when I was just standing around observing, I wrote a few things down, like terminology. Uh, but mostly I just took it in. And you could get back to it. Yeah, I think that, you know how when you're traveling, you just absorb a lot more? You just, you're... you're because it's the new, it's the yeah. other, so it's mm-hmm. imprinting in a different way. You're just more aware, time slows down. You take more in. You remember more about like one day in Paris than six weeks of your normal life. It was like that. And so do you also write? Then would you go back to wherever you're staying, whether it's maybe with your brother-in-law? or (laughs) No, no, no. I didn't do any writing until I got back and had processed a lot of it. And then I started writing. So your research, does it look like that where you'll do the interviews? You'll go out and you'll do it sort of in bulk. And then the the draft one did. Uh, that, that is, I did some research even after I had started, but this one, I did take as much in as I could before I really got started because to know the world, I felt like I had to know the world. And also I I had read a bunch of memoirs about being kidnapped because I felt like I had to know what that experience was like as well. Excuse me. So some light reading. Oh, those books are so so terrible terrible to read. (laughs) It's so awful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're not going to do a book about a cult next or anything, right? Oh, no. Politicians. Is (laughs) that right? You consider that a cult. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Politicians. Yeah. So I've been doing the same thing, going to political events and just paying attention and talking to everyone that'll talk to me. It's local politicians. So, uh, you know, mayor, county commissioners, city councilmen. And they're talking to you for now. They are. I mean, it's... it's, uh, yeah, I haven't had any difficulty getting people to talk to me. I'm not trying to talk to, you know, my senator or anything. That, I assume, would be considerably more difficult. Do you tell them you're writing a book mm-hmm. and it's research? But they know it's a novel. So they, they know I'm not going to. Like, use their exact right. stories. Yeah. Yeah. And you've won the... um the the Cincinnati the prize the sax oh yeah that, sax fund prize that's for a contribution to Cincinnati arts and letters I think or arts and culture yeah yeah that so, was exciting so then people they would know you too then yeah some of them mm-hmm. some of them do yeah so that must be and so Cincinnati seems like it's a place where you've found yourself after moving around quite a lot is this the place you've lived the longest now. Yep. I've been there 10 years. That beats my record. <laughs> yes. So what's that feel like? feels normal now. felt strange for a while, um, but it feels normal now. <laughs> are you sort of, are you, are you fiercely proud of Cincinnati? I do really like Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think uh, it's, it's uh, like some other 
middle of the country cities like Pittsburgh, it's put a lot of effort into bringing people back downtown and and has been successful. And the sense that Cincinnati is cool has really grown in the last decade. This year, we were on all these cool places to visit lists, which is new. But when I first moved there, I, it was what I called a low self-esteem city where people would say, like, why did you move here when you told them? And I think that made me kind of take it on. Like, no, this is a good place to live. I'm going to advocate for this place. <laughs> and it's a place for artists, right? There's, sure. a, there's still a place, you know, you haven't been priced out yet, Mm-mm. potentially. No, it's affordable. Let's take a short break and we'll be back today on the program. Leah Stewart is here. Her novel, What You Don't Know About Charlie Outlaw, and also Cincinnati Advocate. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. <laughs> I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Leah Stewart is here. What you don't know about Charlie Outlaw, the latest novel out with Putnam. Um, Leah, would you mind? Um, we've been talking about the omniscient voice. We've been talking about some of the, the broader strokes of the plot here and, and the characters um, and how their interiority is also really valuable to you as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind reading some of the prose so sure. listeners could get a sense? I thought I'd just read this little section that's from the second chapter. It's a moment when Josie, who used to be the star of a cult TV show, is in a coffee shop and she sees a man looking at her and she becomes a really aware of him because now she wonders if he recognizes her and is going to speak to her. Is she going to have to have a conversation with him? It's like six in the morning. She's not fully awake. Because she's on her way to do one she's of on the her smaller way to do a guest parts, spot. right? Like, yeah. And, and is there, was there an actual like program that you were envisioning for Josie that it was loosely based off in your mind from her past when she was the hero? Oh, uh, people have asked me if it's, if it's, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> yeah. 
And I didn't do it deliberately, but probably that is the closest because I did love that show. It's so good. But if you think about Veronica Mars or, about, oh. you know, like uh, just the idea of uh, of of the um, the female heroine um, and a large cast of other characters. Okay. The man glances at her again. He says nothing but turns away with a secretive smile, so she knows he recognizes her. He must have been a fan of Alter Ego. No one who knows her from her other work ever looks quite so delighted. Now he's got his phone out. She can't see the screen, but she imagines he's texting someone, and she's right. He's texting his wife and teenage daughter, both of whom will be thrilled to hear that he saw Josie Lamar and will want to know every detail of the sighting when he gets back to their hotel room. He'll report that she's taller than he might have guessed and really, really skinny, and that she ordered an Americano with an extra shot and room for cream. He'll say she looks great, and they'll look up her age on IMDb, and his wife will admire her for resisting plastic surgery, and his daughter will wonder why she never married again or had children, and they'll remind each other of the famous men she's dated. In response to their jealousy over the encounter, the man will tease them that this is what they get for lazing around in bed while he goes to fetch their coffee. It'll be a moment they reference for years to come, the time Dad saw Josie Lamar and they missed it. <clears throat> and it was so unfair, because though Dad loved her show, they were the ones who were the real fans. Mom watching it when it aired, and then years later re-watching it with her daughter, Josie's character a role model for them both, a girl so smart and brave that sometimes Mom teared up at the sheer joy of Bronwyn Kyle's existence, at her ability to show this character to her daughter and say, look, there's something out there for you besides hookers and girlfriends. I promise, I promise there is. For Josie, it's not that kind of moment. She won't remember it later, faded into the mass of such encounters. She remembers only the dramatic ones, the linebacker of a man who couldn't stop saying her name as if it were a proclamation while he stood between her and the exit from Bed Bath & Beyond, the woman in a crisp suit who burst into hysterical tears when she saw Josie at the next table in a restaurant eating scrambled eggs. Her cousin's girlfriend, who slid in beside her in the pew during her grandmother's funeral, so close their thighs touched, and asked in a very audible whisper for her autograph. The girlfriend held out a hymnal with the funeral program atop it, proffered a pen. When Josie made no move to take it, the woman pointed to a blank space on the program underneath a Bible verse, as if the problem were that Josie didn't know where to sign. Now, in the coffee shop, Josie's braced and alert, trying to prep for a scene in which she can't predict the lines. Both cash registers open at the same time, and Josie and the man step to them side by side and place their orders. She's aware of him while pretending not to be, just as he is of her, though she's better at the pretending, having had years of practice. It was hard for her during the time when she was truly famous, not being able to observe people without being observed herself. To be a good actor, one has to notice the particular way the man hiding his anger turns away from his wife, the self-conscious carriage of the teenage girl, newly curvy, who wants to be looked at but can hardly stand it when she is. It's the problem of an anthropologist in the field. You can't observe natural human behavior when your very presence alters it. An anthropologist who wanted to examine how people react to celebrity would find Josie a good interview subject. 
She's sympathetic to the starstruck, the ones who are nice at any rate, and she's honored and often moved to hear that she impacted someone's life, and yet it's by necessity a distancing sympathy, tinged with caution, the way you might feel about a little-noticed acquaintance who abruptly presented you with a love poem. What people want is eye contact, recognition, to register in the consciousness of the person so deeply embedded in theirs. They are eager to touch you, and often they do, your sleeve, your hair, your hand. They ask to take your picture, or they don't ask and take it anyway. They say, oh my God, I just really want to hug you, lost in a desire so compelling they're helpless not to express it, as if they're children or drunk or on the rapturous verge of speaking in tongues. They've approached transcendence. They're near the source. Their hearts thunder. Their legs shake. They feel the heat coming off your body. You're real. You're real. They were right to believe in everything you've ever made them feel. Thanks, Leah. Thanks. So that one, that part that you read for us, that's looking at you were able to, we were talking about the psychology and identities and Mm -hmm. layers. And so for that, we had, we got to see part of Josie's experience as well as then these fans and then even the super fans by the end. Mm -hmm. That's the fun and flexibility of that voice that it can go anywhere. So you get to look at a moment like that from multiple angles. And one of the things I think when you uh, when you look at like great 19th century works of omniscience like Middlemarch, you realize that when you're operating in, in the omniscient, uh, you're you're talking about communal consciousness in some way, because even though all of the characters in the book don't don't know what he, what the other ones are thinking you the as the reader do and you see how all of their different perspectives add up to something larger and i think celebrity is a communal experience i'm certain that it is we we only you know this person is only famous because we all know who they are and believe that they matter um, people only react like that like crying on the street when they saw someone that, because they have along with this the culture invested a lot of emotion in that in that person. So it makes sense to me to write about the communal experience of celebrity from, from that point of view. And how does using the omniscient voice then for you as a writer, Leah, have like, I imagine it maybe, well, I wonder, does it make a different experience for like a communal consciousness or this different experience for you as the writer thinking about your reader? Because the reader, yeah. What do you think? Does that even make sense <laughs> as a question? I'm not sure what you mean. I'm not well, sure what you mean. Because as the writer, because I'm imagining, because um, you've got the five other novels, right? Right. Before this, mm-hmm. not using the omniscient nope. voice, um, not having as much fun. No, just kidding. <laughs> totally not kidding. Just getting there. Um, but I wonder with that voice, do you feel maybe in the writing, in the drafting of it, do you feel closer to your reader? Because of course, a novel is always about like going to be this inner connection with the writer and the reader. Like sure. you know there's an audience out there. But by using this voice in this way, I'm just wondering if you had a different feeling of that with the imagined audience. Or I didn't reader. think about it in quite that way, but because there are moments where this narrator directly addresses the reader, you you are when you're writing those parts like more aware of audience. Like there's a scene there's a chapter about auditions that's the narrator talking uh, and saying, like, here's what it's like to audition. 
And so it did feel like, okay, I'm going to sit you down for a minute and explain this to you. I mean, I've written in a, in a first person type of voice that does a similar thing before. So that's, that's Hmm. not entirely new. So, you know, some first person voices are perhaps you could argue all first person voices are talking directly to the reader, but some have that feeling more strongly than others. Like Catcher in the Rye obviously has it very strongly. So communal consciousness, though. I like that. <laughs> I think a little bit more about that, too. Um, so how many years? So it's in the making. Like, when did you start drafting this book? What does the process look like for you? I think I went out to L.A. to start researching it in 2013 or 2014. Uh, I was also finishing up my last book at that time. I don't quite remember when I and then I was started working on this one a little while I was finishing that one up I'm not really I can't quite remember when I started working on it in earnest is that a normal way of working for you where there is like because it feels like one's still open ended but it's finishing where you start I've done that the last couple times it's usually when um, I'm waiting to hear back from my editor then I will just kind of be gathering my thoughts about the next project so so are you always finding time in your days for writing no (laughs) <laughs> no <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> I uh, I try to write once a week some weeks that doesn't happen and then at the end of each semester I have been going to a colony for a week because yeah, I think in the acknowledgments there was yeah, one that I know unfortunately I just closed so I'm not sure oh. what I'll do now I need to find a replacement for that because that has been a really important part of my writing life is to have that week where whatever I had built up, I could get on the page. And so for the built up parts, would that be like sort of the fragments or do you have like notebooks that are just pieces? I have notebooks. I have the research. I have little scenes that I've written. I have, yeah, things that are underway. And then you just dive in with complete focus on this. Yeah, that's the idea. Uh It's worked so far. I'm knocking on our <laughs> table here. The summers help too. How so? Because I don't, I don't teach in the summer. So you can take that. So time I usually and... get more writing time. Yeah. And so also in the acknowledgments, I noticed Elwood Reed. Uh huh. So he has, he's a, uh, yeah. Could you tell us about that? Like why? Uh, uh, yeah. He was one of my closest friends in the program here. And uh, he published, what is it? Five or six books of fiction and went into t- TV writing. So at the time that I started researching this, he was the showrunner on The Bridge, which was on FX for two seasons. So that's one of the reasons I was able to write this, because I got to go and visit that set. And um, and so also, he's somebody who you knew from the program. Mm-hmm. Is that somebody, like, is, are those relationships something where you're also exchanging writing still, or, or not sort of... We don't do that, that anymore, but we did for a long time. He and I used to do that, yeah. Um, but you know, he has five children now and I'm department head and <laughs> yeah, where's writing television and where does the time go? Exactly. Right? Yeah. But when I was, when I was in LA last, I went, uh, to see his daughter in a little rock club. She is the front woman for a band. She has a band and she was born right after we graduated in 96. So I thought. 
And on the one hand, I'm doing something very rock and roll, staying up late and going out to this little club. On the other hand, it's no longer my friends that I'm going to see in a band. It's my friend's child. <laughs> Who's even allowed to drink there, probably. <laughs> I think she's, she's 21 now. Yeah. Um, so uh, with the, I, I just wanted to, let's see, before we let you go, Leah, out into the, the day, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, getting back to the identity a little bit sure. that you're exploring and your empathy towards, I don't know, how to, like maybe just a little bit more about identity, how that's coming into your writing and why having something that's a preoccupation as a writer. Um, do you think it's important to acknowledge that? Like where you're able to actually see what some of your, your own preoccupations are. Uh-huh. Or do you- but you don't necessarily have to know that right when you start. I do, I do think that with each individual story or book at some point, you have to understand what you're writing about and that that will be the, whatever thematic preoccupation it is, is going to be the, the crux of what you're writing about. And until you know that, it's hard to know how to shape the story. But the more books you write, the more you see you write about the same stuff over and over. And I I think it is good to be aware of that and know what you're doing with, with it deliberately rather than have it run the show, have your subconscious run the show in ways that you're not grappling with. I think that that often leads people into alleyways they can't get back out of. Well, it seems like you're always opening on to something new. And now with the politicians, we'll see where you go. Yeah. Which, sure. are, you're not in an alleyway there, are you? Where are you now? Metaphorically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, the story that I'm writing is what one of the councilmen I talked to actually calls a get up off the mat story. So I'm writing about someone who has just lost. And the question is whether to come back, whether to persist, whether to do something new. As they've said to me... Um, you know, when you lose an election, you also lose your job. So if your identity is wrapped up in your job and being a politician, you lost an election, you, that's it. You have no paycheck. You have no job. Your identity's taken a hit. Your ego's taken a hit. It's a lot to deal with. Good times. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> Thanks for coming in and talking today. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> today on the program, Leah Stewart. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
broke my heart to leave the city I mean it broke what wasn't broken in there already I thought all my great reasons for leaving Now I can't think of any And it's true Was a hard time that I come through I'm still thankful the My life's been on a highway Half my life I didn't choose And I have seen the North Star Shining in the freight yard And I knew It was a hard time that he'd come through Still thankful for the blue
commercials and giveaways every 15 minutes and now back to more music and the million dollar giveaway what are you listening to oh i don't know some radio station does it matter i thought all radio stations were alike oh no potsy not all radio stations are alike there's one called wcbn that's different really yes wcbn will keep you interested in life providing an ever-changing perspective of music and ideas. With hours of freeform, hours of jazz, and hours of specialty programming and news every day. Why, WCBN is a veritable cornucopia of ideas. So, change your dial to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It will change your life. Gee. Hello, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and it is 6 o'clock on a Thursday. It is time to move your ass. That's right, we're bringing it back this semester. Yay! Uh, in case you are new to Move Your Ass or you uh, don't know what it is, it's a fitness and aerobics program that we did for many years here at the station and uh, went on hiatus, hiatus uh, a couple years ago. And now we're bringing it back for the spring-summer semester 2018 and it's going to be on from 6 to 6 6 to 6:30 on a Thursday night right before the uh coincidentally the talk show on food that Mike Perini gives you the uh Pandora, Pandora's lunchbox anyhow um i'm going to play some jewish aerobics today yeah that's right we actually have a jewish aerobics lp jewish aerobics 2 i guess there's two volumes in this maybe even more uh, it's performed by the, Nish, uh, the, well, the music is by the Neshoma Orchestra with Total Fitness Program with instructions by Susan Carlin. And with luck, we're going to get through the entire first side of the album. Warm-up, pre-aerobics, semi-aerobics, aerobics 1 and aerobics 2. That's all the tracks that we're going to hear. And uh, I want to note the uh, album cover here. It's kind of cool. It's got a uh, wood floor with a, uh, what appears to be a hotel bath towel with the words Jewish aerobics inscribed in it. On top of the bath towel is a Walkman, an old school Walkman from the 80s, an Iowa Walkman to be exact, with a cassette that says Jewish aerobics next to it with some shoes on it. So, let's get going. Move your ass, folks. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is Jewish aerobics 
uh, instructions by Susan Carlin with music by the Nishoma Orchestra. Welcome to Jewish Aerobics 2. My name is Susan Carlin, and I'm here to help you obtain a better body through aerobics. Of course, we will also do some exercise, stretching, and quetching. You can do it, Sandy. Just remember to work a 